It's the Book and Film Globe podcast, and I'm Neil Pollack, your host of the podcast, also the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, also a three-time Jeopardy champion, also the greatest living American writer. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and have so for decades. I haven't been in charge of the site for decades. It feels like decades sometimes, but the decades go by with the snap of a finger. We're going to start off this week uh, talking to contributor Michael Washburn about the novelist Russell Banks, who passed away recently at the age of 82, a significant writer who deserves discussion. We're also going to talk to Rachel Llewellyn, or she's going to listen to me wax rhapsodic about Aubrey Plaza, the actor who has a new movie on Netflix, excellent new movie called Emily the Criminal. And then Rachel will take the lead and talk to me about The Rig, which is a new sci-fi oil drilling show, believe it or not, on Amazon Prime. Rachel seems to like it a lot, and we're going to hear her thoughts about it coming up soon. But first, Michael Washburn will be here to talk to me about Russell Banks after this self-produced musical interlude. The novelist Russell Banks passed away recently. Those of us uh, in the literary field are very familiar with Russell Banks and his work. He may not be as widely known to people who are outside of literature, but his best uh, known works uh, are The Sweet Hereafter and Affliction, both of which were made into uh, award-winning films back in the day. And Russell Banks is no longer with us. Michael Washburn wrote a lovely uh, appreciation, not really an obituary, more of an appreciation of his work in Book and Film Globe, and he is here to talk to me about Russell Banks. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Hello. All right. So why was Russell Banks a significant novelist of, of I guess, the last two centuries? Is he, he spanned into the 21st as well? Russell Banks came out of this New Hampshire milieu, and he knew it very, very well. He was not someone who pretended to know about a certain place in America and a certain culture and a certain way of life. He really inhabited it. And I think that the authenticity and the urgency and the verisimilitude in his writing comes from having gone through many of the struggles of the characters in his novels. He knows what these people's lives are are like, and he's not just trying to imagine. He's not trying to be this kind of outsider attempting to sound authentic. He's writing about what he knows. He came from a very hard scrabble background and he got out of this small town in New Hampshire where he was reared and he enrolled in university and dropped out and then he traveled and he spent some time in the South. He eventually enrolled at the University of North Carolina where I think he got a very fine education and he was in the end, a great deal more fortunate than some of the characters he presents us with. But I think he wants us to inhabit the lives of people who are not so fortunate. Yeah, a lot of his characters deal with family dysfunction, alcoholism, abuse, um, and just sort of down on their luckness in general. You know, these are working to middle class, middle class at best, folks who are uh, who are not living um, uh, glamorous lives to say the very least. And you said earlier that Russell Banks is not quite so well-known outside of literary circles, and you're correct, but 
fortunately, some movies were made based on his work that I think did rather well. Yeah, and, well, Affliction yeah. was a was a, 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 a James Coburn, I believe, won an Academy Award for his portrayal of the uh, sort of abusive father in Affliction, and then Sarah Polly made an excellent, excellent film out of uh, the Sweet Hereafter, which is a a story about um, you know trauma and grief, and a book that Russell Banks, I think was very proud of, but he himself said that the movie was even better than the book. And how common is it for a movie to get a compliment like that from the author? The author thinks that the filmmakers outdid the author. And it is a, that, it is a, the sweet hereafter is a very good movie. I mean, I, you have, you, you can't really deny that. The sweet hereafter is quite good. And affliction is, an outstanding film. And I can think of no more perfect instance of casting than to have Nick Nolte as Wade Whitehouse. Yeah. Because Nolte really convincingly plays this gruff working class man who is living a life of desperation and alcoholism and he's full of resentment. And even those moments in the movie where he gets up and does something that seems like the right thing to do when his father is trying to engage in sexual misconduct and he gets up and pins him against the wall. It it doesn't seem heroic. It seems like a a very ugly act of desperation because I believe his words are, uh, I'll kill you if you do that again or, or something to that effect. And so it's very grim and bleak. And these characters are, not heroic. Nolte's character, Whitehouse, is an anti-hero. And I think that these are people with no good choices. They're living these very dead-end lives. And it's interesting how, if you read Banks, some of the works kind of bleed together a little bit. So we've been talking about affliction, but I think in this connection of continental drift. Yes, that, because yeah, that's probably the early, my favorite of his books, actually. The early parts of that book are also set in the same New Hampshire milieu, And there is a passage where he's talking about how men and women in this little town, they work all day and they come home at the end of the day without feeling that they made any progress. They've gotten any further towards where they want to be in life and things just go on like that. It's this perpetual cycle. And really, I think this is the scenario that he captures in a lot of his books, certainly in Affliction and in The Sweet Hereafter and some of the works from earlier in his career, like Hamilton Stark and his short story collections, The New World and Searching for Survivors and Trailer Park and Success Stories, a wonderful short story writer. He writes just beautiful passages. And I can't say enough good things about his fiction in general, whether we're yeah, talking I mean, about his novels. Yeah, or yeah, we can speak Noel uh, of the dead. And he was widely beloved. And he was, uh, he was you know, and then for much of his life, at least – by the time I tuned into him, I mean, he was a professor at Princeton for, I don't even know how long, for decades, you know, working alongside Toni Morrison and Joyce Carol Oates in the English department there. Uh, you know, some of his later works, I don't, I think his, you know, after Affliction, I don't remember when The Sweet Here, Hereafter came out, you know, there was, there was maybe, um, he tried some more experimental stuff. There's this book, Rule of Bone, where, you know, he kind of, he, he, there's a lot of patois in it. He tries to, I think it's sort of set in some sort of near future and he tries to inhabit the minds of these of these teenagers. And I don't think that book's particularly successful. But, I mean, his legacy, particularly the three books we've talked about and some of his short stories, you know, 
is like, you know, it, it can't be denied. And, you know, he, uh, he deserved all the, um, all the outpouring of praise that he received this week. Let me expand on your point because I think it's a good one and an interesting one. When he wrote about what he knew, he was phenomenally successful. When he ventured into other areas, maybe not so much. And you mentioned Rule of the Bone. I have to say there's one book of his that I truly did not like, and that's The Darling. And that's a book about this 1960s radical, and she is part of this militant underground, and she goes from the United States, where she's wanted by the, the cops, to Ghana, where there's this kind of radical underground of people who were hiding out. And part of the action is in Liberia during the Civil War. And I have to say, I found the narrator of that book so unpleasant and so, frankly, so loathsome that I couldn't get into the story and I couldn't identify with her struggles and her plight. And Normally, I'm more able to do that. And certainly when reading about his working class New Hampshireites, and even when they have a lot of unpleasant characteristics, they are still on some level sympathetic and the stories are compelling. But The Darling, I have to say, I hated every word of that book. And it's it's an example of his later work that I wish he had not attempted. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, a lot of times when writers who are trying novels like that the better ones tend to uh, come from a more journalistic background, you know, and, you know, Russell Banks was a literary writer sort of in every sense, you know, he, and, and in some ways he was more lyrical in his prose, but he resembled uh, in terms of his uh, empathy toward working class, mostly white people. I think he was closer to Raymond Carver um, in that milieu, even though, you know, Carver was obviously most of his stories were set on the West coast. So, you know, I, yeah, I agree though that when you know when banks tried to like go to the um, to other lands, <laughs> it wasn't quite as good. But again, like he does leave behind a, a, a legacy of um, of excellent work, particularly his early novels, and you know a couple of really terrific films that if you haven't seen Affliction uh, or The Sweet Hereafter, I recommend that you check them out. Mm-hmm. And let me take this opportunity to encourage people certainly to read Banks and also to read some of the obscure early stuff because it's really, really good. The New World, Searching for Survivors, his first novel, which is called Family Life. This stuff is really excellent, and it's a pity that it's not really read and talked about anymore. All right. Well, Michael Washburn, I can always count on you to have read everything, and I appreciate your time and for talking to me about uh, Russell Banks today. It's been a pleasure. There's this new phenomenon where movies will come out in theaters and some people will see them, but not a lot of people will see them because people uh, kind of fell out of the habit going to the movies the last few years. Not me, but some people. And then suddenly they'll appear on social media and there'll be all this talk about them and people will be uh, asking me if I've seen this. And I was like, yes, I saw it six months ago uh, when it first opened, uh, Thursday at 6 6 p.m. or whatever. But that's that's true with like mainstream movies, like The Menu or uh, The Banshees of Inisherin or or even more mainstream movies than that, that, uh, than that, that appear in theaters and then they appear on HBO or Netflix or Hulu or whatever and people start talking about them. It's even more true when it comes to indie films, um, 
like Emily the Criminal, starring Aubrey Plaza, which is now uh, airing on Netflix. That was a movie that, I don't know, some people saw at film festivals or maybe at the Angelica Film Forum or something, but it didn't play very widely. I, I know I personally didn't have a chance to go see it here in Austin where I live, uh, but it's a terrific uh, little crime movie and uh, it's widely available on Netflix and proving very popular. Let's hear a clip from it and then Rachel Llewellyn will be here to talk to me about Emily, the criminal. Sorry, how much uh, interest is being added a month? How are you? I need a real job, just to like pay my loans. Emily, yo, let me uh, hook you up. Get your driver license. In the next hour, you will make 200 cash, but you will have to do something illegal. You won't be in danger, but you will be breaking the law. Yo, you gonna pay for that? Sorry? I said, are you gonna pay for that? My God. Sorry, man. Tomorrow, you have the option to do another job, okay? What do I have to do? You make that much selling TVs. Sometimes TVs, sometimes other things. You could show me how to do it. None of this is safe. But if you listen to exactly what they say, you'll be fine. Hello? Yeah, it's still available. One second. <laughs> yeah? You're scared of me. Hmm? <laughs> yes. All right, that is Emily the Criminal starring Aubrey Plaza and pretty much only Aubrey Plaza. I mean, yes, there are other actors and characters in it, but uh, but she carries this thing. Emily the Criminal is on Netflix and Rachel Llewellyn, not a criminal, is here on Zencaster to talk to me about the movie. Hello, Rachel. That you know of, Neil. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Uh, that, that's true. That's true. I, I don't think you're, you're, um, you're engaging in credit card fraud yet. Uh, although again, again, you might have a record. I don't care. It's not really a requirement. I don't, I don't do a background check. Uh, I just, I just have to look at some clips in order to qualify to write, uh, for, for book and film globe. So yeah. So I don't know, maybe I'm a bigger fan of, you know, it's funny when I talk, when I recruited you to talk to me about this film, you were like, yeah, I've watched about half of the first episode and I haven't finished it yet. I'm like, it's a movie. <laughs> it's not a, but you figure like everything on Netflix is like an eight hour show. Everything. Things that could be a 90 minute film. Well, let's make it a three and a half hour, six episode serial. So it's just, that's the way my brain breaks things up automatically. And since I, I watched it in a couple of different settings, it kind of was episodic for me, but yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It has that vibe, but, you know, like a show like Made, which was on Netflix, it's you know, a similar topic, you know, a uh, young woman kind of down on her luck, you know, dealing, dealing with some unsavory situations and that that thing went on for 10 hours. And I, you, you definitely could have done an Emily, the criminal show. I mean, it's kind of, um, it's kind of got a little breaking bad vibe to it. Yeah, it definitely, it lends itself, I think, to serialization pretty well. I thought that there would be a lot of material, you know, to kind of extrapolate and there is, I mean, you, if you watch through the movie, there's, it's kind of open-ended, um, but yeah, Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza is uh, kind of like our millennial Janine Garofalo. You know, she's traditionally this, like you mentioned, kind of an indie princess. You know, she does these really fun, irreverent comedies traditionally, um, except I would say Black Bear. I think in 2020, she did Black Bear, which is sort of like this psychosexual thriller. And that was where I know you saw, was it Ingrid? Ingrid, uh, Ingrid goes, goes west. west. 
there you go angry goes west black bear was the one that i had known about her dramatic role she kind of plays with some of those darker relationships dynamics and she's kind of showing that she can transition to these more serious films and can carry these heavier stories and that's kind of a rare transition to make yeah. smoothly from comedy don't you think yeah and she can act i mean emily the thing about emily the criminal is that requires a lot i mean first of all she has to be a put on a believable jersey accent uh and which i think she does and she's not from, she's from delaware you know and she uh she's not she's not from from jersey she kind of has a flat affect in her regular speaking voice um and i i find that i found that she really uh she really nailed that the sort of the facial gestures and just uh, the the sort of general style of of speaking of of someone from Jersey, but also like the you know this movie is you know it's a kind of an intense story. She plays this um, DoorDash driver basically with a lot of student loan debt and a, a minor minor criminal record, mostly uh, as we learn, later learn stemming out from uh, an abusive relationship that she was in, and you know and she just she ha- she can't pay her bills and so ends up uh, getting sucked into this um, Armenian mob situation where they're like, you know, engaging in credit card fraud and doing other things. And, you know, she proves herself more than capable of making some uh, tough calls and and doing some really tough and violent things in order to, uh, you know, make her, whatever her dreams are come true. It's really, you know, it's not a, um, it's kind of a cynical film in a way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, she's, she, you know, especially because just in terms of uh, where it's set, I think that the location was, was really important. Anybody who lives in Los Angeles, go watch this movie because you'll, you'll recognize that it's a really realistic portrayal of like this kind of, I don't know how to describe it. This real LA. Yeah, the real LA, the sprawling kind of network of these petty crooks, you know, scrapping these deals on, you know, Concrete. some scheme Concrete. or black market. Yeah, it's a really big alternative economy down there. It's really, it's not glamorous. It's, they're scrabbling for, you know, a few thousand dollars per scam, but that's enough for Emily, you know, in, in a part of the country where the standard of living is really pretty stratified. And you see that there's a lot for the few and a little for the many. Her story is more than, it's plausible. And this isn't a, a revenge on the rich movie. Like there's been a lot of revenge on the rich stuff uh, out there lately. And, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of the yuppier classes. She has a friend who I think is a model or something or, or a, an executive at a design agency. And she's jets off to Portugal on her business trips. And, you know, the, you know, Emily has this job opportunity at this firm, but they want her to work as a design intern for no pay. And, you know, she just gives this big impassioned speech basically telling the owner of the company to go F herself, um, which I thought that was a great scene. And then, you know, and then goes back to doing her crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She says, get bent. I don't work for free, you know, pretty much. And in, yeah. in essence, and but the interesting thing that I noticed about it was she, she does have the option to move, move back to New Jersey. So in terms of like the, you know, the absolute necessity of doing that, you can tell she kind of wants to make it on her own. She's not necessarily, you know, totally at the end of her rope she she does have another option it's just obviously less desirable it's implied that that situation in new jersey is not savory um or 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 desirable and you know she would end up living a similar kind of life she'd still have the debt um and i think she'd have even less opportunity you know so this is a very like it's a very kind of classic uh, la noir and it's kind of gritty it's like a 70s crime movie um, like the friends of Eddie Coyle, something like that, or like a Safdie movie. If you want to do a little bit 
of a more modern reference. And, you know, I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm hoping, I like to see more movies like this. You know, I, this is the kind of, this is the kind of film I can, you know, sink my teeth into. It's, it's, it's not pretentious. Um, it's not, uh, it's very crisp and the action is good too. The, the action is yeah. tight and violent and there's a really good car chase scene. Interesting that it's Aubrey Plaza that is doing this. Cause you know, we met her on parks and recreation, you know, right. And, right. But look at and, her face and you can tell she's always been capable, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so God bless. Um, and, and, you know, it's got a real, real nice nifty cynical ending that is, is it would be controversial if more people had seen it. Um, but I, I thought it was extremely appropriate and it made a lot of sense given the context. So uh, Emily the Criminal is on Netflix now. Meanwhile, over on Amazon Prime, we have The Rig, a very different kind of uh, material. And after this brief musical interlude, Rachel will be back to talk with me about that. Power outage across the accommodation block. Could that have been seismic? Well, we keep punching holes in the earth, eventually it's going to punch back. Hold on! It's kicking back down here! It'll come back. Push it all and shut it down. Oh my god. Kinlock Bravo to Coast Guard. I repeat, Kinlock Bravo to Coast Guard. There's no radios, there's no phones, there's fog, these shakes. What is going on out here? This will split the crew. They're already split. This ain't normal. We all know it, but we don't want to see it. The Rig is airing on Amazon Prime. This is not a show I have seen yet. Rachel was kind of hip to this early because she does our monthly um, streaming guide. And so she knows what's coming and she knows what she wants to watch. And she dug, dug her teeth into this one. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, if you love, um, extraterrestrials in Scotland or <laughs> you're going to like this movie. So Rachel, I, I, your review came out this week. Uh, it's not a movie. It's a show. This one is a show. This one is a streaming show with many episodes. So tell me a little bit about the Ricks. I have not seen it. Right. Well, um, it, it's a, I think, a it's an interterrestrial <laughs> movie since the, the threat comes from beneath. It's mm. a really, uh, interesting series. I thought, man, this is just going to be another, you know, preachy polemic filled, you know, full of these kind of, you know, wrote homilies about the, the environmental disasters and, you know, it's, it's, it's been done, but the the approach to this one I think is pretty fresh. It's got a brand new writer, creator, producer who has absolutely no experience in television or film, and he brings a really fresh sense of who did he have to it. sleep with? Yeah, <laughs> well, I think he, I think he did like a book before, but uh -huh. he wrote like one book. He has like a really varied background, which actually translates into a very interesting story. This um, this person he was trained. Uh, in environmental science and kind of politics. So he's kind of aware of those dynamics, but he grew up in the Scottish Highlands on the coast where his father worked offshore um, building and working on oil rigs. So he kind of has that uh, internal view of, of the community that's built around that industry. And he is really sympathetic to, you know, the workers, not so much with, you know, the, the white collar folks who are running everything, but it's, it gives a much more nuanced, nuanced, excuse me, story 
David McPherson McPherson is his name. And that's what I found interesting about your review as well is that, yeah, you know, some of the pieces I've seen about this, um, the show have said that this is a, a show that gets the climate crisis and all that. But from your review of it, you know, it's also a show that like understands the needs and desires and, and, um, politics and to some extent of oil rig workers um, and also the sort of the nitty gritty of what it's like to work on an offshore oil rig. I, there have been depictions of that on film before, but, you know, not not mixed with this sort of sci-fi horror element. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I, I mentioned in the review, it sort of carries that like heavy industrialism of, of the Alien franchise, uh, which he's a big fan of. But I think he really manages to merge those two worlds really well, which is why it's so interesting. It's just hard to pin down a specific theme, a specific perspective. Um, and that's what makes it interesting and deep and three-dimensional. I mean, you don't really know who the bad guys are even at the end. And, you know, there's just a lot that's open-ended like life. You know, we're talking about restructuring uh, a lot of our infrastructure right now because of climate. And we're kind of dealing with these uh you know, concrete issues of like, what are we going to do with these folks job-wise? How are we going to transition this equipment to, you know, be more environmentally sound? So all of these factors are at play uh, in the series and it, it keeps it interesting. I really thought, you know, oh great, this this should have been like a capsule episode of a TV show. I mean, they're all stuck in one spot, but the, the size of the cast and the size of the environment makes it really workable. They, they split them up on different missions and, you know, go look for this person and go turn that machine on. So they, uh, the action manages to stay pretty evenly paced. So I, I appreciate that too. I thought it might get old fast, but it, it was, yeah, kept me going until the end. That's interesting because, you know, when you think about a show about the, uh, the climate crisis, as, as it were, um, you know, you think like, all right, well, obviously we are the bad guys because we have drilled. <laughs> We have drilled for oil and we have awakened a, a, a creature and that creature is angry. But um, that is not what we're, we're dealing with with the rig. It's, it's a more uh, subtle and nuanced program. Yes, there are opportunities for symbiosis and personal development and perspectives changing and, you know, com- complex viewpoints. I mean, a couple of points in the script, you read like a Facebook argument, you know, between a, a couple of different generations, you know, like a like a boomer and a, and a millennial, you know, they I wouldn't know anything like, about those. <laughs> I, I, I never get into arguments, uh, political arguments on Facebook, as you know, not controversial on social media at all. No, no, no I, ne- <laughs> I, I never take stands that, that people of different generations or even my own generation might find uh, distasteful or offensive. Not so much. I don't get it. I, I just don't know. No, well that, yeah. And that's good. And also like, you know, so, you know, we have a, you know, very strong uh, cast as well. We have, um, Ian Glenn, who was Sir Jorah Mormont, he's a, he's a he's been around for a long time, but he was on you know a big character on Game of Thrones, uh, and Emily Hampshire, who was Stevie, on um, on Shit's Creek, which I'm like okay, like I, I'm how do they how do they ever get her? Another character departure, right, from one of these uh, actors we're talking about. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. I it was a surprise to me. Um, she does do prim business lady pretty well. Um, I didn't see a lot of depth to that role, which was, which was, you know, a shame. Um, she did well for what she did, but I feel like she could have been better written. I think a lot, some of the writing, uh, you know, McPherson's newcomer status does kind of bleed through in a little bit of the writing. Like I mentioned, you know, 
couple of conversations, read like Facebook arguments. But yeah, um, I think that the the brilliance of the cast uh, made kind of everything knit together really seamlessly. And she does as capably in her role as it was written. The half of the uh, cast seems to have been supporting actors on Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes, I, I noticed that too. There were a couple of others. I can't think of their their names, but you know, it's and then uh, Martin Compton, who was in Line of Duty, which one of the directors. I'm sorry, I, I don't know which one it is, um, but it's either John Strickland or Alec, Alex Holmes. He was in Line of Duty, so I feel like now having seen these actors and not recognizing a few of them, they're in they're in these pretty big time, you know, cop procedural type shows in the UK. So it makes me think I need to watch more UK television because they were. Amazing. Well, if you um, well, we all know the uh, British actors are on the whole probably you know just a sort of person for person probably better. But also, like if you love Scotland and if you love Scottish accents and you're you're stuck in a droughtlander, um, this this is the place to turn. I mean, those accents are uh, were delicious to watch even in the trailer. Yes, and that's one of the aspects of this story that I liked. And one of the paradoxes, too, of this whole show is that it's so incredibly localized. It's very specific. And man, if you're not familiar with Scottish accents, you're going to need the subtitles for this. But it yeah. speaks to a really universal kind of problem that all of humanity faces. And I appreciated that they kind of looked at a big issue from kind of a personalized microcosmic view, it really brought a lot of the different, like I said, nuances to light that wouldn't have been possible if they tried for this big sweeping, you know, sprawling story. It wouldn't have worked very well. Um, but now, I, let me ask, really let me, I want to ask you this. Uh, this is what my wife asked me when I mentioned this to her. She's like, is the creature the Loch Ness Monster? <laughs> um, I think he lives in a lake. <laughs> Um, not the ocean. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he took a vacation. It's a plot hole, you know, but it could it could work. I think that's he, also... he swam underground. <laughs> Wait, no, is it a lock? I think a lock is actually. A lock it's is either a I know, I, I know a lock is a lake, but that was the first thing my wife asked. Was like, is it the Loch Ness monster? I'm like, no, it's that not. Would be a heck of a plot twist, though. <laughs> that would be cool. Or what if they were to join forces? Oh man! Well, I don't want to ruin it for folks because with Bigfoot, with Bigfoot, and then they all do the then they all do the monster mash. All right, Uh, thank you, Rachel. The rig is now airing on Amazon Prime. Get up oily and watch it. (laughs) I'll be here all week. All right. Thanks, Rachel, for talking to me about The Rig on Amazon Prime. I think they're going to make a second season. They're going to rig it up. And thanks to Rachel also for listening to me talk about Aubrey Plaza and Emily the Criminal, which is airing now on Netflix. Also, thanks to Michael Washburn for stopping in to talk about Russell Banks, the novelist who died recently at the age of 82. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. And you can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish hot content nearly every day. We put out a hot podcast nearly every week. I have a hot dinner nearly every night. And I hope you enjoy your time after listening to this show. It'll give you lots to think about, lots to watch, lots to read. You'll never be lonely again if you listen to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I will talk to you soon.
You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com.